Shalom, and welcome to Inside Israel News, your source for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news, politics, and current events in the Middle East. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. Inside Israel News is back with a vengeance. (laughs) Uh, The social media campaign has been exceptionally well, especially on TikTok. I've been having fun posting also on uh, the Facebook page if you're interested because uh, the videos have been posted there as well to give you an insight into what's going on on TikTok. Uh, Just uh, thousands and thousands of views, uh, lots of hateful comments, obviously, not a surprise, but uh, a lot of attention, let's just say, Um, fighting uh, against the... uh, the anti-Semitism that runs rampant in our society today and in the West. Uh, it has been interesting, some of the, the feedback I've received, some of the comments I've received, uh, not all of it negative. Uh, a lot of people, of course, you know, give, I want to say, silent assent, just like, or, or they watch the video and, and maybe learn something, uh, but it's been interesting. A uh, couple of videos there talking about the oppression that takes place within the Palestinian state, especially uh, the territories, I should say, that they control, the Palestinian Authority, Hamas, in the Gaza Strip, these kinds of things. Uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that here shortly. Uh, but this episode is just generally taking on the Palestinian cause. You, if you're listening and you're fighting anti-Semitism and you hear people in their comments and all this stuff, and I, I've said so many times, you know, they're, they're these lame excuses to kill Jews. It's okay to kill Jews or it's okay to kill Israelis because blah, 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 right? Whatever lame excuse. And they don't own the land. They did, they did that. So this episode is definitely going to help you fight back, <laughs> make some rational arguments. Uh, but as uh, I mentioned uh, somewhat comically a couple episodes back, as Yishai uh, uh, Fleischman mentioned, uh, they're you know, there has to be a a passion on our side, right? What is it we're trying to achieve? And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that in this episode today. Uh, What does peace mean? And what conditions are necessary to make it possible? We're all happy to talk about peace. We all want to live in peace, but there are preconditions to this, right? I mean, if you live next next door to a neighbor who shoots at your house all the time uh, and, you know, tries to shoot your children and and this kind of thing, you know, this isn't a, a situation you're going to tolerate. Right? Once they stop shooting, then all kinds of accommodations can be reached, from live and let live to uh, you know, come over uh, every other day for dinner. Okay? But the fact is, as long as that neighbor is shooting at you, there's not much you can do. You, know, you can't be friendly. Right? So um, there'll be a number of things on that uh, particular area. But I'm going to take just a minute here to talk about Afghanistan. Because this is the this is the sad news that's going on over there now. When I say the Middle East, I really think of Iran as you know the edge of the Middle East. By the time we get into Africa, uh, excuse me, to Afghanistan and, and Pakistan, uh, India, that's that's South Asia, really South Central Asia. I mean, I I would define the countries just north of Afghanistan as Central Asia: Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan. Those countries are Central Asia you know, the former Soviet Union, uh, and uh, things east of there, you know, China, Mongolia, Korea, that's all East Asia. So geographically speaking, Afghanistan is not really Middle East, but obviously it impacts the Middle East because 
Afghanistan and Pakistan are very large, especially Pakistan, very populous Muslim countries that border the Middle East, if we define Iran as the Middle East's eastern border, in that essence. Uh, so, uh, you know, obviously when the 9-11 attacks happened, Al-Qaeda, this you know, non-state, because this terrorist organization, right? And it's in, it was in dozens of countries and it had its home base in Jalalabad uh, in Afghanistan. It was a perfect place for a guy like Osama bin Laden to hide out because there's no law. Uh, the people that governed it, the Taliban, were right on the same page. And so it was, it was an easy deal for him. And uh, the Bush administration in the United States at the time told the Taliban, hey, you know, you need to give these guys up. These guys are evil terrorists. We want you to give them up. The Taliban said no. So we went in with our allies, the Northern Alliance, and drove the Taliban up into the mountains. Right Now, the Taliban still had the support of the Pakistani uh, intelligence services and the Pakistani military to a large extent. So, you know, it, it's one of these, I want to say, almost ridiculous situations where you go up into the mountains and the Taliban are... You know, they're living up there, but they're supplied with weapons and they have places to hide just over the border in Pakistan. And we saw that even bin Laden was hiding in Pakistan. There is no way, there is no way he was hiding there without the knowledge of the Pakistani government. Okay, that just doesn't happen. Okay, he lived there, he had protection, he was being kept quiet, his presence was being kept a secret. There was a deliberate effort there to uh, keep him from being disturbed or upset uh, in any way, shape, or form. He was being protected by the Pakistanis. So, um, you know, not to blame the whole country, but the Pakistani government, you know, certainly knew about this. Uh, and they've been backing the, the Taliban for a number of years. So this conflict has dragged on for two decades now. Uh, and just the last few years, 2019, 2020, they were very close to reaching some kind of accommodation. Uh, the negotiations reached a point where we could create peace in Afghanistan and leave. Uh, the Taliban had seen U.S. military resolve and that we weren't just going to give up the place, uh, but they have no love of the Afghani government, which, you know, honestly has been corrupt and, and backwards and uh, not much of a government. Uh, but in any case, this is the, the government that they, they have in Afghanistan, theoretically democratic, sort of, kind of, anyway, the last sticking point in the negotiations was getting the Taliban to acknowledge that government, to recognize that government, and then make peace. I mean, we were, we were so close to a, the kind of, a, for those who are interested in, in diplomacy, and we were very close to the kind of uh, peace agreement that was ultimately agreed in Bosnia, right, where you had the Srpska, uh, Serbian controlled areas, kind of being governed by them and the Bosnian Muslim areas being governed by them uh, along with the, the Croat areas. You know, th that was uh, a peace agreement that, you know, sort of two pseudo states within a state uh, for the time being. And then eventually Bosnia has kind of pulled it together since then. And, and they've worked out a lot of these uh, a lot of these issues. Time can can resolve some of these things. Uh, but uh, Afghanistan was very close to that. And one of the major and this is, I want to say it's, it's factual, <laughs> like I say, it's unbiased here, factual, um, but it, it could also be asserted to be slightly an opinion. Uh, the fact is, uh, as long as Donald Trump was president, the Taliban knew that there was a strong leader in the White House and that the United States was not to be trifled with. 
And so they negotiated in good faith, knowing that uh, there were no opportunities for them to pull what they've pulled recently. When Donald Trump was no longer president, uh, they very quickly launched this offensive, perceiving the United States to be weak. And Iran perceives the same thing. Uh, China's holding military exercises off of southern Taiwan, something they wouldn't have done while Donald Trump was president, right? And didn't do, right? So now we're, we're back to this situation where everyone feels like it's open season on the United States. No surprise then, the Taliban has retaken Kabul, they've retaken Kunduz, they've retaken Mazari Sharif, they'll be in Herat soon enough. Um, those who are familiar with Afghanistan, those are, those are kind of the, you know, Kabul is in the northeast of the country, uh, Kunduz is in the north, uh, former uh, Northern Alliance territory. Uh, Mazari Sharif is in the southwest, it's kind of the center of the Pashtun area of the country, and Herat is up in the north, uh, up near uh, Uzbekistan. Those four points are kind of the anchors. Like every country has its, its anchors, let's just say. Those, those four points. You control those points, you control the country. Right? That's it. And at this point, they have three of them, and the fourth one is coming. So, you know, this is, this is the thing. And I'm sad to say that I know all of this because these were the analyses that I developed and the understandings and, you know, everything I learned about Afghanistan. 20 years ago, uh, I developed an interest in the country as a teenager in the late 90s because, you know, it was in the news here and there. But um, the, you know, the history of the Soviet Union had always fascinated me. And their war with Afghanistan was uh, one that uh, definitely was of interest to me. And I've read a number of books, including... Uh, a great book by a Russian journalist who was in country uh, and embedded with their troops. So this this book is called The Hidden War by Artyom Borovich. And uh, Borovich, he, you know, he was there and he saw a lot of things. And in the post-Soviet era, he was able to publish this book and tell the truth about what he saw there and the, the corruption, the backwardness, uh, the horrors caused by the Russian military, but also uh, his accounts of some of the the terrible things that the Afghan rebels did. And of course, those rebels were technically America's allies, right? We were supplying them through Pakistan with weapons like Stinger missiles. Uh, those who are familiar with Charlie Wilson's war, the book, <laughs> the movie is fun and, you know, fun dramatization of, of what happened. But, uh, you know, there there's a good book out there. And, you know, you learn about what actually happens uh, happened there anyway. So I, I had a fascination with the country and its history. You know, the British fought there for two decades, just as we have, and ultimately let the place go because it wasn't worth it. You know, the empire that could hold on to India for uh, over a century uh, in totality, right? Uh, you know, they they could hold on to India. They could hold on to much of Africa, and you know, huge uh, swathes of the earth. And yet, the British Empire. Uh, you know, the sun, the sun only set on the British Empire in Afghanistan for two decades, right? They, they had to leave. So here we are again. This is a major defeat. Uh, President Trump, former President Trump, is saying that this is worse than uh, Saigon in 1975. Uh, and let's not forget what happened in Saigon in 1975. Uh, in, shortly after Nixon's resignation, actually, it was, the, the North Vietnamese launched an offensive into South Vietnam. And the South Vietnamese had a mutual defense treaty with the United States. And, and this is the sad thing. The war was basically over, right? They'd, they'd agreed to, to partition the country and, and the conflict had basically ended uh, in 1973. And then it heated back up 
and North Vietnam invaded. And, uh, you know, the, the U.S. had this uh, mutual defense treaty with South Vietnam. So the South Vietnamese came asking for help from the Ford administration. Uh, but Gerald Ford had succeeded a president who had just resigned somewhat in disgrace after this whole Watergate scandal. And he knew that the country just didn't have the will to get back into the war. And we let South Vietnam fall. And had to evacuate large, we had to evacuate large numbers of people. I've, um, I, I haven't mentioned it here much because I, I have more to say about the subject in, in another podcast that's coming soon. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Uh, be, I'll be giving some uh, information about that in future episodes. Uh, but I've uh, spent a considerable amount of time among the Hmong people, who are a Chinese ethnicity uh, who live up in the mountains of Laos and Vietnam, Cambodia, in, uh, in that region. And, you know, this whole ethnic group, the Hmong, basically had to flee uh, and take refuge in the U.S. Uh, General Vang, his family, and uh, some of the leadership there have tried to maintain their culture and maintain their society, but it, they've undergone a huge and terrible trauma. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a sad, it's a really sad story. Uh, on the other hand, they have the blessing of living in the United States, you know, that, that we, we took them in. A large number of Hmong people around Fresno, California, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, a few other cities where there are significant Hmong populations. Uh, and I'm really fond of the Hmong, and especially their food. But the fact is, uh, you know, they, they put up with a, a terrible thing. Well, now we're going through the same thing in Afghanistan. Our allies now have to leave. <laughs> I mean, there are the ethnic, I don't even want, I don't even want to go into the, the ethnic, inter-ethnic conflicts uh, in Afghanistan, where they have Tajiks and Hazaras and Pashtuns and Uzbeks and all of these different groups uh, who are, you know, spread out all over the country. And in some areas, they're mixed. You know, you have large Hazaras and Pashtuns living together in a certain place uh, and Tajiks and Pashtuns living together in another place and, and Uzbeks and Pashtuns living next to each other in, in another place. You know, they, they, it gets really complicated in the, in the scheme of things. But, you know, you can't just draw a map you know, and, and again, my, my reference to the Balkans, again, you can't just draw a map and say, oh, these are Serbians and these are Croats and these are Bosnians. You know, it's, these were mixed communities to a large extent. So Afghanistan has fallen. A large amount of military equipment has fallen into the hands of the, Afga of the Taliban. Uh, the, the country is falling apart. And so on the one hand, you could say the U.S. went in and got rid of Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is much weaker these days. It still exists, but certainly not what it once was. Uh, Islamic State has largely taken over their mojo, let's just say, in terms of the jihad, in quotation marks, against the West. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Taliban are, you know, while they were an ally of Al-Qaeda, they're more concerned with what's going on in Afghanistan than in anywhere else. So this is, this is a terrible situation for the people of Afghanistan. I've mentioned them in some of the social media videos that I've made. Uh, you know, girls can't go to school, uh, women have to cover themselves, men have to wear beards, there's, you know, just, the Taliban are just uh, so, just fanatical, and, it's, and this is something we see everywhere, these kinds of people take charge, whether it was in Iraq, in Syria, you know, Islamic State, or Al-Qaeda, uh, or any of these groups, uh, it's just a terrible situation, uh, obviously. I don't have to go into, you know, our Western values of tolerance, right? Homosexuality is illegal. 
Uh, if, if you're caught engaging in homosexual behavior, uh, you're going to be defenestrated, you know, thrown out of a building, thrown out of a window. And that's the nice way to go. Okay, I'm, I'm going to tell you some things that have happened in the Gaza Strip. And uh, they're, you know, they're horrors. <laughs> they're unspeakable horrors. It's, uh, it's not funny. In any case, Afghanistan is falling. And this is a, a terrible moment for the U.S. U.S. strength is breaking down in the world, and that's somewhat deliberate. Uh, the the people you can't you can't say that, looking at this situation, that uh, it's an accident, right? The since the Obama administration was in office, there's been a distinct weakness in U.S. policy, with the exception of the Trump years. Uh, there was a reversal of that in the Trump years. And it was all headed in a very different direction. We had the Abraham Accords, and China was backing off in the South China Sea and uh, against Taiwan. Uh, but now it's all back the way it was <laughs> in the past. Uh, weakness is the name of the game. Uh, and that is, that is a sad situation. In any case, uh, some of that is my opinion. Some of it is the result, uh, you know, is now somewhat obvious in, in terms of objective analysis of the situation. So... Take it and use it with what you will. So, on to uh, the Free Palestine uh, issue and the discussion of the Palestinian state when we get back from the break. All right, now that we're back, time to talk about the main focus of this particular episode, and that is the question of a Palestinian state. There's been an attempt by the Palestinian leadership to try to get international recognition and uh, to sidestep the peace process. And the United States, and thankfully, uh, even our allies in Europe, who have been less than reliable on the issue in the past, for sure, there is a, uh, I want to say, a, a distinct effort to keep that prospect to be a matter of negotiation between the two parties. Right? When the two parties reach an agreement, then there can be a Palestinian state. Right? That kind of thing. If they can go around that process, then, you know, they're going to, well, I'll discuss the implications of that in a moment. But just for a moment, let's just take a moment right now, uh, a little bit of a, a historical survey, let's say. Let's take a tour. Let's, let's get on the tour bus and go see what is this Palestinian state right now that, is, that they're advocating for its statehood and its independence uh, before there's some kind of peace treaty between uh, Israel and the Palestinian authorities, right? So uh, this is a, a country, if you want to call it that, of about four and a half million people, more on demographics later, and it's split between two polities, right? In Judea and Samaria, what the international press calls the West Bank, uh, this region is ruled by the Palestinian Authority, by the Fatah Party, and the Fatah Party is... Uh, you know, led by President Mahmoud Abbas, who was elected president of the Palestinian Authority back in 2005 to a four-year term. And there's been no election since. Not in 2009, not in 2013, not in 2017, and certainly not this year, right? There was talk of there being an election, and then he, he took a look at the polls and just completely uh, bugged out. <laughs> no, 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 uh, you know, calling off the election, right? So there's that. So you're talking about a country that is led by an undemocratic dictator who has refused to face election for half the country. The other part of the country, in the Gaza Strip, a uh, strip of land along the coast, 
uh, it, biblically speaking, this is where the Philistines lived in, in Gaza. Uh, Ash, they had a little bit bigger territory, Ash, including Ashkelon and, and a number of the, the, a little bit more of the surrounding coastal plain down there. Uh, but, you know, they have the Gaza Strip. Uh, curiously, pretty fertile area. If you, if you actually wanted it to be productive, you could, you could make uh, a lot with it. You could do a lot with that land. In any case, uh, you know, down there, they're ruled by Hamas, this theoretically Sunni Arab terrorist organization that was founded in 1980 because apparently, you know, Fatah wasn't being terrorist enough or wasn't violent enough or pressing the cause strongly enough that there needed to be a new terror organization founded. And uh, Hamas has taken significant backing from Iran. And uh, even though Iran is a Shiite, Islamic fundamentalist country. And that Sunni-Shiite divide is pretty serious. So much so that the Sunni Arab countries are now becoming allies of Israel in the conflict against Iran. And that's had implications for Hamas. Um, Hamas rules the Gaza Strip and they rule it with an iron fist. Um, you know, you go to Gaza, you know, um, and, uh, you know, I'm not going to, I'm neither, I'm, I'm neither going to confirm nor deny that I have actually been there. Uh, I've been, I will confirm that I have been outside of the Gaza Strip and looked over the walls, let's just say. Uh, that's, that much I will confirm. Uh, whether from first-hand or second-hand accounts, I will say that, you know, you go into the, the cities there, like Gaza City, uh, and there are Hamas military officers walking around wearing ski masks. And they get their green, you know, I want to say like bandana thing with, the, with their Arabic writing on it. Uh, and, you know, they've got their, their AK-47s and they're walking around, you know, they're, they're in charge, right? And there's, there's a nice five-star mall there in Gaza City, beautiful restaurants, lots of nice clothes, you know, for a place that the, the people in, you know, in the anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist crowd over here say, you know, oh, they're starving to death and, and they're being blockaded and uh, it's genocide, you know, genocide never looked so good, let me tell you. Uh, and they're, um, you know, the, the Hamas moors are enforced there, right? Uh, you know, wh again, whether a first-hand or second-hand account, uh, there was a couple walking into the mall, uh, and one of these guys in the green, ben you know, in the bandana and the, the ski mask, uh, you know, turns his head and, and looks at them, kind of takes a step their way, and uh, this young couple decides to stop holding hands as they walk into this mall. Uh, just, just an example of the minor kinds of intimidations that go on. Uh, and this mall is frequented by a lot of the children of the leaders of the uh, Hamas organization. So, you know, this is the nice part of town where the elites live and, and they live really well. Let me just say, they take care of themselves. You know, uh, Mahmoud Abbas over in Ramallah in, in Samaria, nice palatial house with a big pool and a you know, just a beautiful building, you know, you go over there and, and uh, that I can say I've seen, uh, you know, he, he, he lives high on, high on the hog, as people would say here in the Midwest, you know, he, he has a, he has a good life. There's, there's no, no complaints there. Uh, and obviously most of, of the people in his country, if you want to call it that, his pseudo state, most of those people don't live so good. Uh, in any case, uh, Hamas rules with an iron fist. Uh, back in 2007, the two split. 
right? The Hamas went and arrested all of the Fatah officials and Palestinian Authority officials uh, and murdered a large number of them. We still don't know how many. Uh, there are videos that, I mean, they used to be on YouTube since they've gone and, and kind of cleaned out some of the truth that you used to be able to find on YouTube and say so you have to go look elsewhere now. But uh, that only, you know, you could watch these videos, of these guys being dragged away and, and marched in, you know, in chains, uh, you know, with their shirts over their heads, uh, their hands up, being led away. And we don't know what happened to those people. We know a large number of them are dead. We don't know if all of them were killed. Most of them were killed. There are still some uh, PA officials in the Gaza Strip in any case. So if we're talking about a Palestinian state being declared tomorrow, what does the state look like? It's a tyranny, you know, two tyrannies, really. It, it's split between two different political groups that run two different parts of this, its geography. Uh, they're both extremely oppressive. And I'm going to talk about two cases right now real quick. Uh, we have the instance of Nisar Banat. Nisar Banat is a social media guru, let's just say, uh, and uh, he, lives in, he lived in Samaria with his family, and he would go on and make these videos. No, no friend of Israel, so don't, don't think that you know, this guy is somehow advocating for anything that I would like. <laughs> He's not necessarily on my side, okay? But he posted some videos being very critical of Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. So Fatah officials went out uh, to his house uh, to arrest him for speaking against the president. And during this arrest, they beat him for five minutes in front of his family, right outside the house. They beat him for five minutes and then dragged him off to prison where he was murdered. Speak out against Mahmoud Abbas, you get murdered. Since then, there have been riots and protests uh, by a large number of the younger people there against Mahmoud Abbas, against the Palestinian Authority, against the Fatah movement. And uh, they, I mentioned in another podcast recently, there was a story where they went out and arrested 12 of the leaders of one of these protests before the protest could even take place. They just went out and arrested them. You know, they haven't done anything yet uh, so that they couldn't lead this protest, right? And then they were released uh, on the order of Mohammed Shdaye, the, uh, uh, the prime minister. And he, you know, he released them, but there's still, there's still charges pending. Right? So they have this sort of Damocles hanging over them that if they, if they continue to protest, they can be charged with the crime, prosecuted and sent to prison, you know, officially. That's nice. Meanwhile, over in, in the Gaza Strip, a Hamas official who was accused of uh, stealing and engaging in homosexual behavior, Mahmoud Ishtiwi, was executed. If you're caught engaging in homosexual behavior, they shoot you. You die. It's a capital offense in the Gaza Strip. Uh, and I made a video pointing that out. Uh, and it's gotten a lot of you know, people, uh, unfortunately, being extremely hateful uh, toward gays on there. Uh, but you know, they're, they're just out there, you know, oh, no, Islam is against sexual degeneracy. And it's like, you know, so it's against tolerance, according to them. Now, there are Muslims out there who advocate for tolerance, too, to be fair. But at the same time, this is what happens in the Gaza Strip. This is what happens under Hamas. Those two cases, Ishtiwi and Banat, tell us a lot about what goes on in the Palestinian state that people want to create, right? Again, split between two. Go back to the American Revolution, for those who are fond of American history. Uh, if the United States was split, 
You know, we formed this uh, Articles of Confederation to bring the, the 13 colonies together so that they could, you know, now, now states, right, so that they could cooperate, right? Just imagine for a moment if North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Virginia had all decided that they were going to have a separate confederation from the rest of the states. Do you think France would have been willing to help? What kind of a state are you people? You can't even get on the same page, right? You have two different countries that you're trying to form, right? What, are, what do we have going on here? So uh, this is just one example of, uh, you know, what's going on. So this is, this is problematic. There is no Palestinian state. And as I'm about to discuss, there really isn't a Palestinian people in quotation marks, right? There is no historical people called by that name. Uh, and most of this stuff is just this contrived effort to try to attack Israel, right? And, and its support is used as one of the reasons in the videos I had to attack the Palestinian quotation marks cause so heavily is because it's used as the excuse for anti-Semitism. It's okay to kill Israelis. It's okay to kill Jews. It's okay to murder people. It's okay for these people to fire rockets at, you know, homes and businesses and schools in Israel and murder Israelis targeting indiscriminately because the poor Palestinians. You know, the Palestinians are, as I'm going to describe a little bit in their history, they're, they're a perfect case for that meme you see where a guy's riding a bike and then he puts a, a stick into the front wheel and he, next scene you see him, he's fallen on the ground, he's holding his knee, cradling his knee, and he says, you know, why did somebody do this to me? Uh, that, the, there is no better poster child for that than the Palestinian cause. Uh, the, this, you know, it, it, it's sad. It really is honestly sad the um, amount of uh, sabotage that these people have committed to themselves. There's a saying in Israel, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. So uh, this, is, this is as true now as it was so many years ago when, when phrases like that were developed. So um, creating a Palestinian state. A tyranny where there's all of this horrible oppression. Sounds like a, a paradise, right? Sure. Meanwhile, I mean, Europe is looking for cheap labor, right? Unskilled labor. Turkey, a number of other countries have, have talked about how if there were peace, they could invest all this money in building factories and, and creating jobs in this territory, right? The, the Palestinians could prosper, right, if there were peace. So uh, the fact that those people haven't done that tells you a little bit about what goes on there, right? There's, there's no economic opportunity. There's no opportunity to build anything. Uh, Europe gave a whole bunch of concrete to the Palestinians to help them build new houses. And instead, Hamas built tunnels, the Gaza Metro. I, I talked about in previous episodes. Israel had to blast it because it was full of terrorists ready for uh, a fight. Now, hoping that Israel would send its forces into the Gaza Strip, which, of course, it didn't. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about history and demographics in the next section here, the next segment of the program. To uh, and, and you can get into more detail like this if you want to research it yourself, but you'll have enough information if, you, if you're just listening to this episode to fight back against this, you know, the basis for the anti-Semitism 
you know, and anti-Zionism and all of the whatever, you know, the, the Israelis are so mean to the Palestinians. You'll have plenty of that uh, coming up. Uh, but, um, and then, you know, based in, in some small part on the hateful comments I've gotten on social media, um, I, I think these people are so fun because they never, they never really think things through. But, um, but in any case, this is, this is the situation that prevails. Uh, what prevents peace? My last point here before I go into demographics. The existence of Hamas and Fatah, these terrorist organizations, and the oppression that they perpetrate against their own people while they at the same time engage in terrorism against ours, that is the impediment. That is the problem. And to a large extent, you know, the, the international support for them. Right, so all of these Westerners who are going out and protesting, you know, free Palestine and Israel's so horrible, they are contributing to the problem. Iran and the Arab states for a number of years have been contributing significant amounts of money to Fatah and even to Hamas in the past, although now that it's uh, kind of blatantly backed by Iran, the uh, Arab governments have backed away from Hamas in a major way. Uh, Egypt in particular, uh, the Egyptians after the... Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood took over years ago after the Arab Spring uh, when the Egyptians rose up and protested in, in Tahrir Square to get rid of that uh, government of Mohammed Mursi and the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, the Egyptian army finally went in and pushed him out of power and restored the country to civilized behavior. Uh, they, they regard Hamas as a friend of mercy in the Muslim Brotherhood, and therefore Hamas is a threat to them, threat, you know, a security threat to the Egyptians. And it's interesting because the Egyptians have a border with uh, Gaza, and it's just as blockaded and fortified and whatever as the Israeli part. But we never hear about that, do we? The media never says that Egypt has a blockade on, on Gaza. And why does Egypt have a blockade on Gaza? To, pro to protect Egyptians, to prevent the, the Hamas organization from terrorizing Egyptians, which they would do if they could, right? So this is, uh, this is the situation that prevails there. All right, now I've discussed some demographics in the past. I'm gonna do it again real quick here. Uh, it's pertinent to this topic. Uh, one of the things that we constantly hear is this narrative that there's an attempted genocide against the Palestinians, right? Israel's just indiscriminately killing people and they're trying to commit genocide, okay? Well, this is one of those things that's just patently false. It's obviously patently false. It's blatantly ridiculous on the surface of it, right? Uh, for so many reasons I shouldn't even have to go into because no sane person should. Uh, you know, arguing with the insane. Uh, but yet, uh, bigotry, in, in my opinion, results from a little bit of insanity, obviously. You can only believe these things. Like, you can only believe that Israel's trying to perpetrate a genocide out of hate, right? Out of bigotry. If you hate Jews, then you can believe that. If you don't hate Jews, you can be told that. But, I mean, if you take any time and investigate any of the facts, you can't believe it. It is not objectively true. It's so far from objectively true that, you know, it's ridiculous. And so the people I've heard in my lifetime who've advocated that position advance this idea that there's an attempted genocide being perpetrated against the Palestinians. And I poke just a couple of questions at them and they immediately just go into a temp, fly into a temper tantrum. You know, 
because they don't have any argument, right? So they get emotional because uh, the argument that they're making is being destroyed. Or they change the subject. They try really hard to talk about something else. And I'm like, oh, you're changing the subject because you're realizing how absolutely you know, bigoted, hateful, and ridiculous your opinion was. And then I get that look, you know. Uh, but it's really important, I think, to call this out. To go to these people, to look them in the eyes, put your finger in their face, and say, you're a bigot. You know, you're full of hate. The only reason you can believe this thing, the only way you could believe such ridiculous nonsense, is that you hate. And all of the intellectual arguments I give here that you'll listen to and you'll appreciate because people who listen here looking for unbiased news are obviously doing a little more thinking, have a little more intelligence than that. Uh, but uh, for a lot of these people, uh, they don't think about these things. They've been told, they've heard, they've been led to believe, you know, there's this, this group thought thing. Uh, they've never actually thought about these things. So help them think. So in addition to our passion for the issue, you know, I'm being a little bit more inspirational, I guess you could say, trying to take on the issue here. I'm also going to bring in the intellectuals so you have the facts, figures, and numbers uh, that just destroy the argument. So real quick, as I've already kind of covered this, when the British liberated the Levant, the Levant now referring to the current borders of Israel, less the Golan Heights, right? Uh, when they liberated that, General Allenby did in 1917, the British did a survey of the population, and then they did a formal census in 1922. In any case, there were about 700,000 people living there, uh, mostly in rural small villages and that kind of thing around the country. Uh, of those people, uh, about 20% were Jewish. There were about 150,000 Jews there in, leading into the early 1920s. Uh, and 80% of the population was Arab. Of one Arab or mixed, there were, there were a number of uh, different ethnic groups that were there. You go and do DNA samples, and it's like there are some people who are Greek descended. People, some people, especially the Christians, tend to be related to the Crusaders. Uh, you know, but you know, there's also a large number of ethnically Arab people. And there are also Bedouins, and you know, they move all over the whole region. Um, and uh, a large number of Arabs. Well, Arabs have lived in the region for uh, in, in small numbers for many years, and Ottoman Turks and a few other different groups have come through the area. There have been several waves of immigration that have passed through, you know, b the various Turkish movements, uh, migrations just before the Crusades, and then the Crusades, and then more Turkish migrations, and then, you know, and it's, just, it's a long history. I'm not going to get into all that. All right, but you have that. Of those 700,000 people, about 10% were Christian, right? So about 70,000 people. So you've got about 150,000 Jews, about 70,000 Christians, okay? So about a third of the population were Jewish or Christian, right? Now, the British had uh, the Balfour Declaration. There was this idea that there would be a Jewish state. So those who felt the, the zeal for Zionism began to move to the, the land. And uh, over the course of the succeeding years, before the last census in 1944 and uh, the demographic circa 1948, uh, the Jewish population grew to about six or seven hundred thousand. Not, you know, again, precise numbers aren't exactly there. Uh, we have uh, the there's sort of a downward trend in Jewish migration in the late 30s because of what was the the White Paper that was issued. 
this is a way the British talk about their policy. Like we have executive orders here in the U.S. They have white papers. They had a white paper b that uh, limited Jewish immigration to the region because the uh, the Arabs had revolt revolted, and this revolt was uh, led by the Mufti Al Husseini, right, a, a guy who was an ally of Al of Adolf Hitler and actively lobbied the Nazis for a final solution to the Jewish question. Uh, he also raised a, a Waffen-SS division called the Hanshar Division. There's another great book, <laughs> a good book in English. Uh, if you want to learn some history, learn about the Hanshar Division. It, it'll help you understand the Balkans a lot better, for sure. Uh, but you'll also understand who were the people who founded the Palestinian Liberation Organization that we now call Fatah or the Palestinian Authority. Right. A large number of those people, not just the Mufti al-Husseini, but a large number of those men were from the Hanshar division. Right. These are the people who trained these. The, the Palestinian Authority, the PLO, Fatah, is literally the, the last relic of the Nazis. Right. It's the last legacy of Nazi Germany. Uh, nobody wants to talk about that. But anyway, so that's, point, that's one point you can, you can take home. So by the time we get to the 40s, there are about 1.9 million people living in what is now Israel. Right. And uh, of that population, about a third is Jewish. Now, because of the Holocaust, a large number of Jews fled in larger numbers. So there was a dip in Jewish immigration in the late 30s and a huge rise in Jewish immigration into the 40s. Uh, by the mid 40s, of course, large number of Jews as as the war ends in Europe, a large number of Jews are fleeing to uh, Israel where they can be safe after this Holocaust. And, you know, the Soviet Union is also anti-Semitic. Uh, and by the 1950s, uh, Stalin made it very clear, you know, in the late 40s and early 50s, that uh, Jews would be persecuted, uh, especially in Eastern Europe, even more so than in Russia. So large number of Jews trying to escape there as well. Uh, so there's this uptick in, in Jewish immigration. But about two-thirds of the population is Arab, some of them Christian, uh, and about a third of the population is Jewish at this point as we go into the, the declaration of the State of Israel. And uh, one of the reasons you, you look at that number, and he's like, okay, so there were 700,000 people, about 500,000 Arabs, Muslim Arabs, living in the region back in the 20s. And 20 years later, there are like 1.2 million Arabs living there. What happened? The population almost doubled. What, did they have a lot of babies? No, that's not what, you know, that's not what happened. The population more than doubled because large numbers of Arabs moved to the region. Uh, two big reasons for that. One, Mufti al-Husseini called on Arabs to come to the region and fight. You know, uh, come here, occupy the land, exterminate the Jews, and uh, that kind of thing. Uh, but also a large number came looking for economic opportunity. There's the untold story of the British Mandate of Palestine is this incredible economic revolution that took place there because the British are, uh, the British Empire was built on laissez-faire capitalism. Uh, there was incredible economic opportunity. And with Jews investing in, in growing business and there, you had this, uh, this economic miracle that takes place there during that region. And large numbers of Arabs are coming there to work and make money and, and take advantage of those opportunities. Arabs like the Arafat family from Egypt. Yasser Arafat. Arafat is an Egyptian name, right? These people were not Palestinians, in quotation marks. Okay? So at this point, we've got about 1.2 million Arabs living within what is now Israel. Uh, 
the state of Israel is declared, right? And we have the war of independence begins and the Arabs and countries invade. And finally, by 1949, there's an armistice line. Egypt controls the Gaza Strip. Jordan controls the lands beyond what's called the Green Line, Judea and Samaria, what the international press calls the West Bank. And this is where it gets its name, right? The Jordan, the country of Jordan, which is all east of the Jordan River, now has a West Bank of the Jordan. Uh, and so, you know, this is an armistice area and a name that, that comes from 1949, whereas the names Judea and Samaria are ancient. It's been called that for 3,000 years, right? So look at a map, read the map, Samaria, Judea, right? This is what these places are called. Okay, so uh, at this point, you get these 1.2 million Arabs living there, and significant number of them are living in those territories that are now belong to these Arab countries, right? And out of the remaining Arab population that is within now what is now Israeli-controlled territory, about 150,000 choose to stay in Israel. So these are the, the origins of the Israeli Arabs that I've talked about quite a bit. Uh, the others go out into those territories into exile, in quotation marks. So let's just take a moment. Let me, let me go through just a couple of things here real quick because I've got some great points to make, but I, I just want to say, so if you lived in Gaza City and you were an Arab who lived in Gaza, regardless of whether your family came to the region or not, and Egypt takes over that territory, right, what's changed? Have you been forced to leave your home? No, you're still living in your home, right? It's just now it's no longer the British mandate of Palestine. The British have left. They declared the state of Israel, and now you're, you're under Egypt's control because Egypt invaded Israel along with a bunch of other countries. And this is the armistice line. So these are not refugees, right? Now, some of the people who lived in what is now, like I want to say Israel proper, pre-1967 Israel, okay, some of those people left. Maybe, depending on whose numbers you use, maybe as many as six or 700,000 people were forced to move, but probably quite a bit fewer than that who were in the territories that are now, you know, securely Israel's in 1949, okay, within Israeli-controlled territory, right? Uh, there's all this stuff about, you know, they were forced to leave. A lot of them left voluntarily. They did not want to live in a Jewish state. Uh, you'll hear anecdotes about, you know, they threw rocks at somebody, you know, yeah, that, that happened. Uh, Israelis, Jewish were, you know, after watching what happened in the war, were understandably upset and they behaved not always in the best way. Uh, you know, telling their Arab neighbors to leave and maybe throwing rocks at them. Let's talk about what the Arabs did when they encountered Jewish settlements and cities and villages during the War of Independence. Okay, because when they came to a Jewish village, they killed every man, woman, and child and buried them in a mass grave. Right, so if the Israelis behaved like the Arabs did, if we had moral equity between the two groups, there would be no Palestinian refugees. Would there? Okay, now, these people who live in Judea and Samaria and Gaza, either having left there voluntarily or who lived there before, like so they, they lived in Ramallah or Nablus, and now, you know, they still live in Ramallah or Nablus. They haven't been forced to leave their homes, but now it's controlled by Jordan, was controlled by Britain, briefly was part of Israel, technically, because Israel declared independence, and then Jordan invaded. Now you're part of Jordan. But what's changed? You're still in an Arab country. 
don't see what the problem is here. These people aren't refugees. Somehow they've gotten a refugee status. Okay, so not not sure how that happens. Okay, 150,000 uh, Arabs stay in Israel, most of these people being native. Of the people who lived there in the region in 1922, of this, you know, about 500,000 Muslims, right, we're talking about a good quarter of them stay right there in Israel, right? A good number of those people who were in this region are still living in the Gaza Strip or, or in Judea and Samaria and have not had to leave. They're still governed by Arabs, right? Most of these people were calling refugees at this point, right? At least two thirds, but probably uh, on the whole, for the most part, a good most of them are these people who moved to the region in the last 20 years. Those people are on the same page with the Jews. The, a lot of Jews have moved into the region in the last 20 years. So what's the difference? Right? They moved there looking for prosperity. Jews moved there looking for security and prosperity. Right? And they left. These Arabs left. Or were now under Arab control outside of Israel. Okay? Israel didn't control Judea and Samaria at the time. All right. So, years pass, 1967 comes along, and Israel liberates the Sinai Peninsula, including the Gaza Strip, from Egypt, and Judea and Samaria from Jordan. Uh, once Israel had taken Jerusalem, if you look at the map, uh, you know, the space from Jerusalem to the Jordan River is a very short distance. Once Israel had gained control of the old city, and the Jordanians no longer had that position, they were basically forced to retreat because their lines had been cut in half. Everything west of the Jordan River was about to be isolated into two pockets. And since Jordan River is in a valley, a river valley, the Israelis were in a position to cut off the entire Jordanian army and besiege them in Judea and Samaria, right, where they'd have been surrounded and uh, forced to surrender in, in an embarrassing fashion. So as soon as Jerusalem fell, uh, the Jordanians immediately retreat. They, they withdraw back over to Jordan. Uh, again, they made that choice based on the strategy, based on, on the military situation, all right? But they moved back. And since that time, when Israel and Jordan reached that armistice at that particular moment, Jordan and Israel haven't had any further conflicts, right? They've been at peace. Uh, and, and formally made peace in 1996 in a, in a peace agreement. Since then, they, you know, they cooperate, giving each other, you know, trading resources, and Israel uh, helps provide significant water for Jordan. Anyway, so now Israel controls the Gaza Strip and Judea and Samaria, right? Where, depending on whose numbers you look at, there are something like 1.2 million Mus uh, Arab Muslims living there. The people that are now being called magically out of thin air, just somebody just invents this term, Palestinian. Palestine being the, the Roman name for the region, loosely based on the word Philistine, right? But, you know, the British often used Roman or historical names in their, in their nomenclature for the British Empire. Okay, so now all of a sudden there's this Palestinian people. Now, according to some sources, depending on whom you ask and what numbers, about a quarter of a million Palestinians, in quotation marks, get up and leave these Israeli-occupied territories, okay? So Israel now controls these territories, so about a quarter of a million people leave. 
Some say that number's higher, some say that's number, that number is lower. These people left voluntarily. Nobody told them to go, they left. The Israelis go to the Arabs at this point, the so-called Palestinian Arabs, and say, hey, we don't want to control you people. You set up your own governments, local governments, and we will support you and we'll help you. You govern yourselves and we'll leave you alone as long as you leave us alone. Everything will be good, right? We'll have peace. And of course, the, uh, the, some leaders stepped forward and, and said, hey, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and take up the reins of government. And uh, the Fatah movement, again, the, the last uh, legacy of the Nazis, assassinated all of these people who came forward to try to help govern and, and try to lead these Arab communities and, and lead them to a better place. The, they declared these people to be collaborators. So the Palestinians, in quotation marks, refused to govern themselves from that point until the Oslo Accords. So from 1967 to 1992, Yasser Arafat, now starting to, to become sort of the spokesperson leader, you know, he and, and Saeed Arakat and that crowd uh, are, are becoming sort of the leadership class of the, the so-called Palestinians at the time. Again, Yasser Arafat, an Egyptian name. Now this guy is about as Palestinian as I am, right? His family's from Egypt. Uh, you know, my family's mostly from Europe with, you know, whatever. So, you know, this thing. And you'll get these people who argue with online, you know, oh, the Jews are all European. Yeah, but Jews are genetically related to about 400 Jewish families that lived in Rome about 2,000 years ago, all of your European Jews. And those 400 Jews were related to people in the Near East. So, you know, genetically, most Jews go back to the Middle East, even if they're European. Middle Eastern Jews are much more closely tied to the Middle East, obviously, uh, and you know I'm about to talk about that. Now I mentioned in the in the past, you know, 800,000 Jews were forced to flee these Arab countries. So according to the there are maybe 600, 700,000 Palestinians were forced to leave in 1948. 800,000 Jews, more Jews than these Palestinians, were forced to flee Arab countries, uh, and some of them spent years in concentration camps, uh, as I've discussed before. Uh, so go listen to previous podcast episodes to learn more about uh, their experiences. So it's, a, it's a, a miserable situation. It's also in the past, okay? So now, it's 1967. Israel has about 900,000 to a million Palestinians under their control in Gaza, Samaria, and Judea, right? According to the United Nations today... Now, the United Nations, for those of you who know, is not a pro-Israel organization. In fact, I, I, I feel very confident in saying very unbiasedly and, and very objectively that the UN is an anti-Semitic organization. I mean, they have parties where they have uh, maps that say Palestine on it and, and they erase Israel from the map. I mean, these are people who, you know, the UN basically, you know, supports genocide against Israel. So, you know, what, what, the point is they're not on our side. So their numbers are not going to benefit Israel, whatever. Uh, they say that there's somewhere between 4.3 and 4.5 million Palestinians today, right? So there were a million, less than a million, depending on whose number you, about 900,000 to a million Palestinians in 1967. And today, there are about 4.5 million, right? They've grown, their population has grown 4.5 times, right? They're 4.5 million today, we're a million back then, okay? If this is genocide, you're doing it wrong. And the Palestinian population continues to grow year over year, right? So uh, as far as Israel's attempted genocide, this is the most incompetent, worst-run genocide in the history of mankind, 
when a population grows four and a half times in, you know, the, in the course of, of five decades. Sorry to say, right? And I, I've said this before. I mean, you know, Israel is a country that has a very powerful military, especially for its size. And it's well known for its military prowess, right? And firepower. Uh, Israel is a country that, that develops cures for diseases, that is a leader in high tech and, and develops, you know, software systems that help companies do lots of things all over the world. Israel provides, through companies like IDE Technologies, clean water for millions of people around the world. You're trying to tell me a country that can do all of those things, uh, a country that can plant the Middle East, you know, turn, turn desert into farmland, right? This country is attempting to commit genocide against the Palestinians and the Palestinian population grows four and a half times. Explain that to me. I'm, I, I want to hear. Why is it? What is it? What is it that keeps the Israelis from doing that? Right? That's what the, what the situation would be in reverse if, if it had been the Arabs who drove the, the Israelis into refugee status and then came to control Jewish areas. Right? There wouldn't be any Jews living there. One way or another, they, they'd kill them or expel them. They'd all be gone, right? Um, kind of look at what other countries would do. What would the Russians do, right? What did the Russians do in Chechnya? They just bombed the place flat, annihilated whole villages, you know? Completely destroyed the whole area. What would the Chinese do? What did they do to the Uyghurs? Put them in concentration camps. Try to change their culture. They're moving millions of Han Chinese, what they call Han Chinese, ethnically Chinese people, uh, into Xinjiang to try to dilute the Uyghur population, right? What do the Israelis do? What do Jews do? This higher sense of morality that we have, that we can't just, you know, murder people or hurt people, we allow these people to live, and we're trying to make peace with them. And so we suffer for that. We suffer because we are good people and trying to be good people. Uh, you know, the Palestinians are a people who shouldn't exist for two reasons. One, uh, if the Israelis had behaved all along the way that they said that the, the anti-Semitic people, anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic people say we would, then there shouldn't be any Palestinians. We should have annihilated them. If we were really the evil people they say we are, there is no reason any of these people should be alive today, right? By one means or another, they'd all be gone, or at least diminished, right? That million Palestinians that were under Israeli control in 1967, there'd be half of them gone, right? Population declining year over year, right? And yet they grow four and a half times. Wow. Again, you see how patently ridiculous this stuff is. Uh, it's, it's so ridiculous. You can only believe it if you're deluded. You can only believe it if you are bigoted, if you hate a group of people so much that you'll believe lies that are completely untrue at face value, that are completely ridiculous, right? Uh, and this is, this is the situation that we find ourselves in today in the West. Uh, and now you can better understand why anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, because to be against the right of Israel to exist, to try to diminish that, to claim that it's okay for Arabs to fire rockets at civilians, which incidentally, as I've said, you know, you would never allow white people to behave that way. 
We would never let the British, you know, bomb a country like that. Never let the French do it. We can never get away with that kind of thing, right? America, well, God, if we accidentally bomb a wedding party in Afghanistan or accidentally cause a civilian casualty here along the way, we're horrified. You know, oh, God, America can't do that. But Arabs can, which is, you know, racist, right? Brown-skinned people, it's okay for them to murder people because they're uncivilized, right? They're just down out of the trees. Uh, you know, they're, they're still uh, uh, picking, picking bugs off of each other and, and scratching themselves and, and acting like apes. You know, that's okay because they're just, you know, they're primitive people. They're, they're not as good as we are, not as highly evolved, right? They can behave like that, but no white people can behave like that. And again, if you apply a single standard to both parties, you will see that on the whole, Israel has at least tried to abide by this higher standard, whereas the Arabs just commit murder on a massive scale and are continuing to attempt to do so. Uh, there's just no moral equivalency here, let alone any kind of moral supremacy for that cause. And the demographics put the lie to all of this stuff, right? Um, Speaking of demographic lies, there's kind of a comic thing. According to Wikipedia and uh, the UN, there's like 14 million Palestinians uh, in diaspora around the world. If you want to see a ridiculous number, <laughs> there were, you know, 1.2 million people in what is now Israel, including Gaza, Judea, and Samaria, in the 1940s, right? Uh, and that 1.2 million people, what would they have had to do to become 14 million people around the world in the space of uh, seven decades, right? What kind of numbers are we talking about here? I'm sorry, you know, even these, these tough Arab ladies, <laughs> and if you've met Arab ladies, they are tough, and they can have a lot of kids, and they can raise families, uh, big families, for sure, without a doubt, okay? But uh, I'm sorry, they'd have to be popping out baby factories really fast. There's only one way that number can be anything, and that is if they fake it. There is no way there are 14 million Palestinians related to 1 million people, right, uh, in, in that time frame. It, it's, it, that's another thing that's ridiculous. Uh, everybody, apparently everybody's a Palestinian refugee uh, wherever you go, you know. It's, uh, it's hilarious. Uh, so look at the numbers, look at the facts, see what you're, what you're looking at. What kind of Palestinian state are these anti-Zionists advocating for? A terrorist state run by two different terrorist groups, split between two different terrorist groups where, you know, gays are thrown out of buildings, uh, or worse. I'm not going to describe the worse, uh, that I've, I've heard, uh, unfortunately secondhand, but, uh, from sources that are reliable. Um, you know, you, could, you used to be able to find video. Now you can find some video on, on the Islamic State uh, execution of homosexuals in Syria. And you, can, you can see them throwing people off of buildings. But uh, everyone wants to keep the attention on Islamic State. They don't want to talk about Hamas throwing gays off of buildings. So you can't find that video anymore, uh, you know, from, from YouTube. That, that kind of conveniently disappears into the, the cosmic ether there, right? Uh, and, uh, again, what, what Fatah does to these different groups. And then there's Nisar Banat, a man who exercised his human right to speak his mind and say he hated his government. Here in the United States, just a few years ago, while Donald Trump was president, Snoop Dogg 
made a music video where he shot Donald Trump, uh, uh, an effigy, right? A, a person dressed up as Donald Trump. He's in a music video and he pretends to shoot the president. And for that, for that heinous act of violence, which is, you know, hateful and vengeful and um, just really petty, okay? It, it, totally tasteless. Right? If somebody on the right made a video now of somebody shooting Joe Biden, no one on the right would appreciate that. You know, making a few jokes about him eating ice cream or not knowing what he's talking about uh, can be in good humor. You know, we, we as Americans love to pick on our presidents. But to depict the murder of a president, that's not making fun of the president. That's not like the old jokes back in the early 90s about George H.W. Bush, you know, if I only had a brain. We, we used to sing that, you know, that little little line about, you know, back, back from the, uh, the Emerald City and all this stuff about uh, Dorothy and what have you in, in uh, the 1930s, and we make fun of George H. Bush. I'd be cutting taxes and growing the economy if I only had a brain. And, and then uh, Bill Clinton, you know, he was Slick Willie, you know, and George H.W. Bush. We used to make all these jokes about, you know, how dumb W was, right? You know, that, that he'd go to France and say, the problem with the French is they don't have a word for entrepreneur. And you know, we love this. This is, this is a, a very important part of being American, is making fun of the political class and, and having a, a good joke. The less said of the jib-jab videos that I used to love back in the aughts was just, they were shameless. They'd just make fun of the political class and that kind of thing. But to, to make a video, a music video, where you shoot the president, extremely hateful, just way past the, the, the bar there, right? Not funny. And yet, what happened to him? Was Snoop Dogg arrested? Was he beaten in front of his house for five minutes and dragged off to be murdered in prison? No. Did he face censorship? Did, was he, was he deplatformed from social media for this uh, heinous act of vile pettiness? No. No, in fact, he sold more music and went on. And he's still a free man. He still has the freedom of speech, right? But this guy, Nisar Banat, went out and spoke his mind and said, you know, spoke criticisms of his country's president, his country, I say in quotation marks, the Palestinian Authority. He criticized the people who govern him, and he was beaten for five minutes in front of his family, dragged off to prison and murdered, right? And this guy, Mahmoud Ishtiwi, who, you know, whatever his preferences were, he apparently was caught engaging in acts that Hamas considers bad, and they murdered him for it. Nice people, really. Okay, this is what you're advocating for if you're advocating for a Palestinian state. Now, with all that said, final segment here, different possibilities for peace. Um, to begin this segment, I want to talk about vision, right? There, what, what is a vision for a, a future of Israel and that kind of thing? And when I look at the vision, when I look at the, the blueprint, the model, uh, I, as somebody who generally favors the Israeli right, uh, although I've, I've said I, I speak well of Yair Lapid, although I've called him out on a few things, I speak well of Bibi Netanyahu as well, but I also have called him out on a few things. Uh, you know, I, everybody, you know, in fairness, uh, their their pros and cons. Uh, nobody is perfect, right? But uh, Zev Jabotinsky is sort of the founding father, the right-wing founding father of Israel. Uh, he died in 1940, so he was not able to live to see Israel created. And uh, it would have been really interesting to see what would have happened had the country been created and had he and Ben-Gurion been the major political 
uh, spheres of influence in the early days of Israel's founding. Zev Jabotinsky was a Russian Jew, secularist, uh, who believed very strongly in military strength. You know, some say he was a militant, it's a fair statement within certain boundaries, but generally speaking, he believed that Jews should be strong, and that we should be able to defend ourselves. But uh, he also supported the free market, and he was a man who envisioned an Israeli state, a Jewish state, generally speaking, where Jews and Arabs lived together in peace. Even to the point that he was willing to see a rotation in prime ministers. You have a Jewish prime minister and then a Muslim prime minister, and then a Jewish prime minister and then a Muslim prime minister. Uh, very similar to the model that uh, they have in Canada, right? French prime minister, uh, English prime minister, French, English, or Scottish, or, or non-French, let's say. French and non-French. <laughs> Um, that, that has uh, prevailed there oftentimes. And uh, there's a model in Lebanon where the, the president is usually Christian and the prime minister is typically a Sunni and the speaker of the, the parliament, the speaker of the house, is typically a Shiite in, in order to try to keep the balance in that country for a number of years. And they've tried to maintain that tradition, but the country is just falling apart now and becoming a failed state. So um, when, when we look at... Um, we look at that vision, the miracle that took place under British occupation, as much as I am not a fan of colonial powers, you know, as an American, <laughs> Americans are not fans of colony, uh, colonial power at all. In fact, uh, America's only major colonial experience in the Philippines was a horrible one. It leaves a bad taste in our mouth even today, a century later. Uh, you know, this, this horrible thing, like, you know, we, we became the people who uh, fought the pal you know the the Filipinos fought us for their freedom. Oh God, it, it's just to say it, it, it my mouth you know I, I can't you know I want to gag on it. it it's it makes you want to puke. Uh, it's a horrible thing, right? And you look at the, how the history happened. You can understand the how that mistake was made. But now, like we learned our lesson very quickly, and uh, we had a number of interferences in uh, the Mexican Revolution and in Central America as well and South America that have been. Uh, you know, colonialist-ish in nature that, that were not good. Nevertheless, um, we have uh, a distaste for, for colonial powers. But the British moved into the region. In theory, they were supposed to help create countries there. That was the idea. The Sykes-Picot Agreement was this idea that Britain and France would have spheres of influence in the Middle East, and they would generally create states there that would ultimately become self-governing, right? This was, this was the notion in any case. Uh, so the, the prosperity that took root there, and it's, it, it almost, like, I, I hate to say it, it almost chokes me up to think about it. What, a, what a, an opportunity. If you could go back in time and magically erase... Mufti al-Husseini and his work with the Nazis and the Hanshar division and all of that and the hatred that had grown up between the two. And just, just wave a magic wand and the Arabs and the Jews love each other. And you think, you know, a large number of Jews are going to come to the country from Europe and, and the Middle East and it's going to be a majority Jewish country, but with a strong Arab minority in it, right? And you think about the prosperity they could have shared together, working hand in hand as we plant the desert, as we build industry, as, as this country comes together in Zeev Jabotinsky's vision of a free market, secularist country where people can prosper. And, and when I say secularist, I just mean, you know, that there's not religious laws, right? And in, in fairness, Israel has religious courts for those who wish to go to the religious courts. And 
secular courts for those who wish to go to the secular courts and so on and so forth. But the point is that, um, you know, without religious laws, free market, people could, you know, prosper. What a thing that could have been, right? There's these, you know, two million people living there and then a large number of Jews were going to show up. So just think of a country in the early 40s that's maybe three, three and a half million people, majority Jewish with a strong 40, 45% Arab, where they're working together and prospering in the great post-World War II boom that takes place in the free world, right? You know, that would have been beautiful. And we're working toward that goal now, now that Israel is making peace with the Arab states, now that uh, Arab countries like the UAE and Bahrain and Morocco see Iran as the greater threat and are, are normalizing their relations with Israel, opportunities abound. Uh, Ra'am, led by Mansour Abbas, now serves in the Israeli government, political party in the Israeli government. Uh, Israeli Arabs are starting to take a little bit of responsibility for themselves and for their participation as part of an Israeli state, right? The state of Israel. It's becoming theirs. And I've talked about, you know, uh, Arab enlistment in the IDF is increasing as well. So they're starting to kind of take responsibility. I want to say take, take, take stakeholder status. They're starting to accept their status as a stakeholder in an Israeli, a greater Israeli society. So there's that. Uh, that can happen. And there can be that peace. But what prevents that from happening are these terrorist groups, the hate that they engender, the children taught with textbooks right from the very beginning, oh, Jews are bad, and, and this kind of thing, <coughs> taught that the best thing they can do is kill themselves, martyr themselves to, to murder Israelis. Uh, right from there. It begins right there. And silencing free speech in their own countries, and murdering gays murdering people who just want to live their lives their own way, by their own preferences, by their own conscience, right? Uh, whereas over in Israel, people live free, have freedom of speech, right? Israeli Arabs have rights in, that aren't even available to them anywhere else. Uh, as uh, my, my recent interview with uh, Aaron Lipkin, he pointed out, you know, they, the Arabs call the Israeli Arabs the Arabs of the cream because they, they live better than most of the Arabs uh, throughout the Arab world on the whole. Right, you know, if you're Mahmoud Abbas, of course, and you've got a, a nice palace on a hill overlooking Ramallah, yeah, you're living it up. But most of the people in the Palestinian territories uh, do not live that well, right? But uh, they could, right? So what has to happen? As long as those terrorist groups lead, there could be no peace because they are groups that are dedicated to mass murder, they're dedicated to war. It's like, they're, you know, World War II could not end with a situation of peace until the Nazis were gone and the leaders of the Japanese empire were gone, right? You, you couldn't have a peace where Hideki Tojo was continuing to lead Japan, where the Japanese army continued to lead Japan, right? There was no post-war world where Adolf Hitler remained the Fuhrer of Germany. Okay, you, you can't have this, the, the evil, the cancer, and have peace. It doesn't work that way, okay? It has to go away, it has to die, right? Hamas and Fatah have to go away. And unfortunately, they, I don't see any way that they're gonna go except with violence because they control their populations so severely. Um, I mentioned the Tahrir Square protests in Egypt. There were similar protests in the Gaza Strip shortly after Al-Sisi took Egypt back and, and liberated it from the Muslim Brotherhood. 
and uh, Hamas at the mere inference that there might be protests. Hamas started driving through the streets with all their military equipment and, and showing people off their machine guns and their uh, uh, heavy equipment and, and armored vehicles that they have. And they, they were massive intimidation campaign against the people there. So if those organizations were gone, let's just go into thought exercise that tomorrow we're going to wake up in a world where there is no Hamas, there is no Fatah, where Palestinian children are not raised with these textbooks that teach them to hate Jews, where they vote and elect their leaders, and they decide on people who are held accountable, who have the best interests of the people at heart, rather than the, the best, have it in their best interest to murder other people, right? to keep their population oppressed so that they want to murder other people. Right? All kinds of peace possibilities are there, from the two-state solution, Gaza and, and Judea and Samaria becoming their own country, within certain limitations. Uh, it was a great speech that Bibi Netanyahu gave. Uh, I remember watching way back uh, in the late 90s where he described, uh, based on the Oslo Accords, the possibility of a Palestinian state and limited. And he discussed the question of limited sovereignty. And he said, you know, because um, there was a French reporter there pressing him about, you know, what do you mean by limited sovereignty? And he's like, you know, you know, the Palestinians can govern their their cities and they're, you know, however they want. They can do their own zoning and their own planning and they make their own laws and punish their own crimes and that kind of thing. That's not a problem. Uh, limited sovereignty means that they can't make, say, military alliances or have a military, right? The, the, the Palestinians don't need to have a massive group of tanks and planes and this kind of thing at their disposal. Israel will provide that national security. But he also pointed out, now this was the late 90s, so Saddam Hussein was still in power, uh, if they could make military alliances, then Iraqi you know, the, the Iraqi Re Republican Guard divisions could be, you know, in Nablus, uh, in, in Latrun, in places, you know, looking over uh, Israeli civilians, right? And that couldn't be allowed. But in terms of governing their own day-to-day -day lives, they would be free to do so. And that would be the case if we, if we had peace and we could do that. That's the two-state solution. There's a Pseudo two-state solution, I want to call in between. I, I mentioned it earlier in the, in the podcast. Gidon Sa'ar has been an advocate for this position. And that is the idea that um, in uh, Judea and Samaria, at least, the Palestinians could have several cantons or smaller states, not the whole thing is one, but several smaller states that are federated to Jordan. Basically, essentially, they would become Jordanian citizens who would live within Israel. And then Jordan and Israel would work together and, you know, there would be, there would be peace. Uh, that's a possibility. Uh, as for the Gaza Strip, that's a little bit different. Uh, one opportunity there, give Gaza back to Egypt. Uh, Egypt would be very happy to deal with Hamas. They consider a major security threat to the Egyptian state. And they could go in there and clean out Hamas. And they wouldn't be as nice as Israel about it. Uh, well, that wouldn't necessarily be a positive or pleasant prospect, but let's just say there wouldn't be that many terrorist organizations left when the Egyptians were done with it. Uh, and then, you know, they would govern the region. So uh, that's kind of a semi, you know, two-state solution. I guess it would be Egypt in control of the Gaza Strip and uh, Judea and Samaria having uh, Palestinian cantons federated to Jordan. There's also what's called the one-state solution. It's basically a modern iteration 
of what I just talked about with the uh, Zayev Jabotinsky uh, vision, and that is the idea that you know all of the Palestinians would just become Israeli citizens and all that land would become part of Israel and they would just live together. Again, a prospect that if there were peace, could be possible. In terms of uh, maintaining the Jewish state, people are always concerned because they say, well, the Palestinians have a higher birth rate right, than uh, Israeli Jews do. Well, that's not true anymore. Uh, the Palestinian birth rate has dropped off just as it's dropped off with all peoples around the world. Uh, and it's, it's getting closer to what we would see in a modern Western state. Uh, Palestinian women are having fewer children. Uh, uh, so, you know, for those who don't know, the driving factor behind birth rates is the desired family size of women. And this is true wherever you go, whether they have access to contraception, abortion, or whatever. Wherever you go, women have as many children as they want. Sometimes one more than they want, all too often one fewer than they want. But uh, within one child approximately of what they want. Uh, and that is, that is an interesting fact. I, I, that surprised me when I found that out. But, you know, it's like you look at the desired family size in India, and lo and behold, the average Indian woman has that many children, right? Desired family size in Canada. Same thing. Now, Canadians have access to birth control and, and contraception, all this kind of stuff, abortion rights and all that. Uh, and uh, many people in India can't afford that kind of stuff. Yet, they're the same, right? It's, it's the same thing. It's whatever women want is what they get. Okay, so the birth rates are declining. So you'd have like four and a half million people there added to the million-odd Israeli Arabs uh, that could end up being... Uh, a strong minority. We're talking about 40-45% of the country. And when you're talking about the Jewish majority at that point, and again, this is back to that demographic question, who's going to have more babies, right? Uh, so a lot of Jews see that as a, um, a problem, that that would lead to Israel becoming Palestine, right? That it ultimately the Arabs would get the majority, they'd rename the country and turn it into an Arab country. Probably not what would end up happening, but you know, you don't know. I mean, once it's one state, once they're citizens, that, that could happen. And then there's the question of who's deserving. You're going to take people who've been trying to murder you for decades, and now they're suddenly going to become your friends and neighbors, and we're just going to, you know, kiss and, and on the cheek and, and shake hands and be like, hi, you know, everything's good now. I don't know about that, right? It's kind of difficult. <laughs> That's, you know, I, I'm not sure. Okay, but in any case, that would be a one-state solution. Again, all of these possible solutions are possible in an academic sense on paper when you talk about the possible solutions for peace. But all of those things are just like a marriage. You have to want it, all right? If two people want to be together and want to be married, they'll find a way, right? That's, they'll make it happen. But if one party refuses to cooperate, that's going to end in divorce, you know, or maybe they don't get together in the same, in, at all. But the point is, you know, if you have a conflict between two people and one of them refuses to resolve the conflict, then there's no resolution. So as long as these terrorist organizations rule the Palestinian territories with an iron fist, there won't be peace. And so everyone is trying to create a Palestinian state surreptitiously by going around the, the negotiating process. Everyone who's saying they're anti-Zionist and they're, you know, the poor Palestinians and, oh, the Israelis are so awful and so evil, uh, Iran. <laughs> all of these factors, all of these parties are contributing to more conflict and more death. So if you're against Israel, if you're for the poor Palestinians, 
you're all about free Palestine, you are part of the problem. To resolve this problem, the terrorist organizations need to be made aware that they are the problem by Arab governments, by we here in the West, by everyone, so that they understand that they have to go away. They're not going to do it willingly. They're not going to want to. So that's the situation. When those terrorist organizations no longer exist, when there is no violence, when there are two groups of people who want to work out a solution, they'll find a way. One of those three basic, on-paper, academic, mental exercise solutions, uh, any one of those could work depending on who wants to do what uh, and depending on what the political circumstances are. But none of them can work as long as there's an attempt to murder Israelis. All right, well, uh, it's been another exciting episode, hasn't it? Uh, please like the Facebook page and uh, follow on TikTok, follow on YouTube or YouTube Shorts, Instagram. Uh, Inside Israel News is everywhere. Uh, I have hinted that there's another podcast coming. I'll say more about that soon. Uh, and uh, uh, please, you know, if you like uh, Inside Israel News on Facebook, you'll stay up to date with all of the posts that are going on and, and everything that's going on there. So with that, I will say, Lahitro, goodbye.